If you have your Bible today, you could maybe turn to the book of Joshua and chapter 8. Joshua and chapter 8, page 183 in our church Bibles. H.G. Wells in 1888 at the age of 22 describes his year's literary efforts. One short story sold. One novel of 35,000 words burnt. One novel unfinished. Much comic poetry lost. One humorous essay sent and not returned. One story wandering. Total income, one pounds, no shillings, no pence. At that time, the words of H.G. Wells were not valued, appreciated, or read by many. We come in this chapter to consider God's words. Another insight into the church of Christ, central to Christ's church is God's word. Last Sabbath we thought of church discipline in the seventh chapter. Tonight we'll think of prayer, another aspect of Christ's church which is central and influential to the life of its members. Today we think of God's word, its authority, its relevance, its impact upon the life of Christ church. The architecture of our buildings emphasize the centrality of God's word, that the pulpit has this dominant place. The pulpit often with a pulpit Bible emphasizes the centrality of God's word in the life of congregations. The elements of our worship services are dominated with God's word, singing God's word, reading God's word, preaching, not the apocrypha, but God's word. And so we come to, to think of this other attribute of Christ church, God's word. Chapter 8 of Joshua is a, a pivotal chapter, isn't it? Up until now in the advance of the, the people of Israel, they have won one battle at Jericho and they have been defeated in one battle at Ai. Here they are at this juncture, this crossroads, winning one battle, being defeated in another battle. And we're asking in this journey with Joshua, how will it go from now on? What will the future hold for Christ's church in this journey in the land of Canaan? And we know that from chapter 9 through 10 and 11 and into 12, they will be undefeated. There will not be a battle that they do not win. From now on, victory will always be theirs. But what is it that changes in their experience? It is a submission to, and an obedience to, 
God's word. And from here on, as they value God's word, as they imbibe God's word, as they wait for God's word, and follow it, victory will come. God's word, dominant, to be dominant, in the life of his church, in the life of the members of his church. Now, theologians have taken this broad perspective, haven't they, on the forms as we spoke to the children in which God communicates his word. As we said to them, he communicates it sometimes verbally. He he speaks in audible voice to his servants, and he does that here in Joshua 8. But he also speaks in written form. His word is communicated. The the Spirit comes on Moses or Joshua, and they, they are moved to write down on papyrus the very words that come from the mouth of God. Sometimes his word comes in written form. And then as we read in John, the theologians argue his word also comes in personal form in his son, Jesus Christ. And these three modes of God's word are found in the eighth chapter of Joshua. Let's think firstly of God's verbal word. In verses 1 to 29, the first major section of this chapter, God's verbal word. In verse 1, And in verse 18, we we read the same introductory phrase, The Lord said to Joshua, God's verbal word. It was a failing in the past chapter, wasn't it? As they approached and attacked the city of Ai, thinking there was only 3,000 people there, when, as we learn in this chapter, there was actually 12,000 people in that city. They didn't wait for instruction and guidance, but, but here, they hear God's word. He speaks to Joshua on two occasions in this important contest against the city of Ai. He's bringing his wisdom. He's revealing to Joshua direction. He's amassing that supernatural intellect of heaven and communicating it down in language which a humble, mortal, frail servant can understand. The Lord said to Joshua, What did he say? There were two critical dimensions to what God said. Firstly was the tactics in verse 1 to 17 that Joshua should adopt as he came to the city of Ai. God advocated that Joshua should use an ambush against the city of Ai. Now this afternoon you can explore the exact details of this ambush because it is quite complex and difficult to piece it all together. Part of the ambush was that Joshua would have the large army which came to the front of the city of Ai. Part of the ambush was that a group of 30,000 soldiers would go behind the city of Ai. 
But then there's also another group of 5,000 soldiers which are to be located between Bethel, which was the large city, and Ai, the large army with Joshua. A group of 30,000 behind the city. And then a smaller group of 5,000, it seems, were part of this ambush. And when the time came, Joshua was to withdraw from the city of Ai. The city of Ai and Bethel were to pursue them. And verse number 17 indicates this. Not a man was left in Ai and in Bethel when the ambush was to enter the city then and burn it. So the tactics were communicated to Joshua. But then in verse 18, a critical point, the timing was communicated to Joshua. He wasn't left to guess. He wasn't left to wonder. He wasn't left to to peer uh, through his foggy eyes to, to see when the right time had arrived. God in heaven spoke to him at the very critical moment. Now is the time for the ambush to be triggered. Now is the moment for the 30,000 to rise from the bushes, to come over the hill and to enter the cities of Ai and of Bethel. And they came in response to the the javelin of Joshua being lifted up to the heavens, perhaps glistening in the sun, perhaps pointing to the source of the strength of the people of God. And when they saw the javelin sparkling in the sun, the ambush arose and burned the city. And we we read in verse 20 that the soldiers of Ai and Bethel had no power. The resistance was gone as they realized they were trapped, as they saw their city and goods and homes going up in smoke. Their hearts failed them. Their strength was weak. The verbal word of God. This is how you do it, Joshua. This is when you do it, Joshua. Unfortunately for us, there's not that facility for us at this time. We would love sometimes when we're trying to make a decision for God in heaven just to speak to us and say, this is what you're to do. But nonetheless, from this fascinating part of God's word. There's lessons we can learn, isn't there? And one is that God encourages us. It's just incredible. In in verse 1, he comes to Joshua and he says to him, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Can you imagine Joshua's emotions in that moment? Just having stoned and buried a member of the church. Having been defeated at Ai, when his hopes were high, when his anticipation was great, Jericho had fallen, but now at Ai, that smaller city, they'd been defeated. Had God changed his mind? Was there a new plan? How low he was, how weak he felt, but God is a God who encourages, and he comes to Joshua with this verbal communication and says, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. 
The first phrase, do not fear, occurs 50 times in the Old Testament. It's comforting. It's amazing. It comes at times of crisis and of need. Amazing to hear that from God in heaven, verbally or through his prophets, Isaiah. But the second phrase, the added phrase, the further phrase, only occurs four times. In times of special crisis. And here is Joshua at a low point, a time of discouragement, a time when he's wondering, will God use him again? Has he turned away from them to to choose another to take over the land of Canaan? And God adds this extra encouragement. Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Doesn't he bring us encouragements in our life, this is the type of God he is. An answer to prayer, perhaps. A word from a fellow church member of appreciation for the service that you're involved in that seems unnoticed by most. What a model to emulate. What an example to follow. To, to look around and see the illnesses in the congregation and, and those who are carrying those who are unwell and encourage them in whatever way we can. Amor Towles published his first book at the age of 46, A Gentleman in Moscow. It gained encouraging reviews, sold well, and in his interview, he, he looks back to an English tutor he had at university who asked him one day to stay behind class. Then the conversation the tutor told him that he had the ability to write. And that encouragement lived with him for 22 years until he published his first book. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. God encourages us. A second lesson from this is that God uses our failures, isn't it? Look at the phrase in verse 6 at the end. Just as before. They are fleeing from us. Just as before. Isn't that incredible? We can't really enter into the feelings of those soldiers in the Old Testament church as they ran away from the the soldiers of the city of Ai. Sense of humility, the sense of humbling, the sense of discouragement. The jeers, the shouts, the cries of their, their victors as they chased them from the city of Ai, as they fired arrows past their ears. What a failure. What a shaming experience. But that very experience of running from the enemy is used by God to bring them victory just as 
before. And doesn't that transform our failures? Perhaps we've been in a messy relationship. Perhaps we've gone off the rails. Yes, we're to deal with it in our heart. We're to confess our failings in those circumstances as Israel and the people did. But we're also to trust in our sovereign God that those experiences will not be wasted. That in his greatness and wisdom, he will lift those up and he will use them to bring victory and growth and advance development in our Christian life just as before. Another lesson we learn from this verbal communication by God is that God cannot be limited and needs to be consulted at all times and in all decisions. There was one model for approaching the city of Jericho, wasn't it? Marching round the cities, blowing the trumpets. But here's a a different approach. Here's a new military tactic that, that God advises his church to take. He's to be waited on. He's to be asked. He's to be listened to in the decisions of our life. We're we're not to presume by counselling from other friends and by our own rational powers that that we can work up the best way uh, to do things. But rather we're to, to listen to God and what he says to us and the advice that he gives. We'll see this evening that they failed to do that when the Gibeonites came with their moldy bread and worn sandals and clothes. They they used their powers, they used their sense of touch to ascertain the crumbling bread that was presented to them and based on their rational powers and on their communication with one another, they took a decision which was wrong. But here they listen. Here they respond to God's direction to God's word. A fourth lesson that we learn from this major section in this eighth chapter is that God is good. God is good. Chapter 7 ended with that solemn ceremony of Achan and his daughters and sons been burned and buried under stone. But chapter 8 opens in verse 2 with these words. Its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And all commentators draw attention to this incredible command of God. And they emphasize If only Achan had waited. If only he had waited. He could have had his fill with the blessing of God. He considered God to be restrictive. God to be niggardly. God to be unkind in 
and forbidding the people of Israel to take any plunder from the city of Jericho. But now, a few hours later, he says to the people, take as much as you want. God is good. And in our life, as we look back in our life, we've seen times when we panicked. Times when we took decisions out of fear. Greed, perhaps. Misdirection. There's always things in our life that we're praying for and longing for and sometimes we're tempted to take the matters into our own hands and not to wait on God just as Achan did. God's delays are not always. God's denials. Maybe you're a young person seeking a relationship. And all the nice guys and girls in your class are not Christians. And you keep praying in your heart to God, but you know that you can't go out with him or her. They are handsome. They are cute. They are stunning. But they're not a Christian. Remember chapter 8 of Joshua. God is good. In his time, in his plan, in his way, wait for him. The verbal word of God. Secondly, and much briefer, the written word of God in the second section in the chapter, verses 30 to 35. Shechem seemed to have a friendly relationship with Israel. There was a historical connection with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. They had been there. And so the nation travels to Shechem, which is in between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerasim. Here they build an altar. They plaster the altar. And Joshua writes on the plastered stone, the law of God. Some think he wrote the Ten Commandments. Others think he wrote Deuteronomy 27, the blessings and the curses. Others think he wrote Deuteronomy 5 to 27. Most likely it was a fuller account of God's law that he did write. God had spoken to Joshua. But you see verses 34 and 35, four times the word all is used. All the law. All the people. The verbal word had come to Joshua on his own. The leader, the solitary individual, the lone person, the verbal word. He was privileged to receive the tactics and the timing. But the written word, it's for all the people. The children, the judges, the elders, the men, the women. Today, as members of Christ Church, let us make a fresh commitment to reading all of God's Word. And by His grace, redeemed by Christ, seeking to imbibe and follow all of God's Word. And lastly, 
personal word of God. Every chapter speaks of Christ, doesn't it? In every chapter we are led to Christ. In every chapter God is teeing up his son who's going to come. So great is he that those characters in the Old Testament are are looking forward to, are are, are anticipating, are, are showing his son, the word, the revelation of God, Jesus Christ. We find Christ in this chapter, don't we? Where do we find him? Well, we find him in Joshua. First of all, don't we? He is the conqueror. He overcomes the king of Ai. He triumphs over him. Verse 23, the king of Ai is arrested and brought to Joshua. He's his servant now. He's underneath his command and authority. Jesus is king of kings. Chapter 12 will record 31 kings conquered by Joshua. That type, that image of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is all authority in heaven and in earth. But the personal word is not only revealed in Joshua here, but look at verse 29. They hanged the king on a tree. What a statement. They hanged the king on a tree. That event of the king of Ai, burdened by his own wickedness, hung up there at the command of God as a sign of God's judgment and curse upon him for his sins, foreshadows that event a thousand years later, outside the city of Jerusalem, when the people of Israel, driving on the Roman soldiers, hung the king on a tree. Not for his wickedness, but for our sins. We reach out our hands of faith again today, We give our Savior, Jesus Christ, our sins and our unworthiness and all our breaking of his word. We receive his perfect righteousness to cover our unworthiness by faith and by grace. The verbal word from heaven, the written word which we have in our hands today. The personal word who's among us this morning will give us grace to follow him and serve him. Psalm 107 is our closing psalm this morning. Psalm 107.